Open with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 7, verses 24 to 37. It is so good to see you. Uh, In the morning, I pray and prep, and I look out the window at an empty parking lot. And most of the week, the parking lot is empty. But it is so good to see you pulling in and walking in and then having a seat and opening your Bibles. Uh, No one goes into ministry to be alone all week. Study is needed, and you need to be out doing what you're doing. But it sure is nice to be together. My kids were playing hide-and-seek last night in the cul-de-sac. You're all familiar with hide-and-seek. Someone hides, and the rest hunt for them. And it's a fun game. Have you felt that Jesus is hiding from you? That's no fun. The thought that the Lord of the universe, the only one with the answers to any question of any meaning you'd ask in life, the one with the only answers to the great problem of our guilt and death and condemnation is hiding from you. Maybe you've come to church to to find him and you wonder where he's at. Well, this morning on this passage's page, we find Jesus doing a bit of hide and seek. Thank God as the passage and as the story ends, we find him loud on the lips of of his people as he is through our church. But let's read together Mark 7, verses 24 through 37 together. From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home, found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Then she returned from the region, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon and the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Apatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. He spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But more, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond a measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. Well, this morning's passage, we have two encounters with Jesus, two encounters with Jesus, and there are some similarities between them, and there are some differences between them. Similarities, Jesus is now in Gentile territory. He's left Jewish lands. He's in in Gentile territory. He's after some privacy. 
You'll notice at the beginning of this first story, he's trying to get alone. He goes into a house, but of course he is found. And by the end of the second story, while he's being told among all the people of the region, he'd said, don't tell anybody. This is a theme we've seen throughout the gospel of Mark so far. And we see this matter of, if you call it privacy or hiding in both of these stories. We find a beggar in one story and we find a beggar in the second. And we find some cryptic statements, situations. Jesus, in terms of what he's saying to the woman, is troubling when we slow down and listen carefully. And what Jesus does to the man is a little weird, which we'll take a look at as well. So some similarities and there's some, some differences. In the first story, we have Jesus approached by a woman concerning her, her daughter. And in the second story, we have Jesus approached by some men concerning their friend, a, a man. And one has in the first story, a, a demon. And in the second story, a matter of, shall we say, sickness or disease. Three questions will guide our time this morning through these two stories. What kind of people does Jesus heal? What kind of healing does Jesus bring? And why is Jesus always trying to hide? What kind of people does Jesus heal? We'll begin there. These days, if you want an appointment with your doctor, it depends on the doctor. Um, whether they're open for business or open for you, um, your sickness or your symptoms in the last week may mean you can't get an appointment right now. There are some five types of cancer that are diagnosed at a 30% lower than normal rate. And it's probably not because the coronavirus is curing everybody of cancer. It's probably because of delayed diagnoses and, and delayed screenings, and that can create problems. Of course, we read the news and we're learning about all kinds of little ripple effects and and difficulties. But this matter of what qualifies you for an appointment with a doctor is a little different today than it might have been a year ago. And we pray, Lord willing, a year from now. Well, what kind of people does Jesus heal? Well, as we enter our passage here, we've got a, a setting given to us. In the first case, we have a place. From there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, this is the place that this first story takes place in, Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you were to do a Bible search across your scriptures, which is a whole lot easier with the software than it is with the Bible in your hand, but if you were super soaked in scripture, Tyre and Sidon would ring a bell to you. This is the place where in Elijah's day, Jezebel was with her prophets and her schemes. This is the place during a Maccabean revolt, this region, these people set themselves up militarily against Israel. The prophets spoke against Tyre and Sidon time and again in the Old Testament. And Josephus, years after Jesus was here, would say that this region for Israel was their most bitter, most bitter enemies. So Jesus doesn't, hasn't just left uh, Jewish lands. Jesus hasn't just gone into Gentile lands. He's gone into enemy territory, if you will. This particular city where this gal is from is especially affluent. 
and she would have been quite wealthy. So this is, if you call them an oppressor class, this is a a people famous for their their cruelty and and their wealth. Isaiah even, which as the prophet stands behind so much of Mark's gospel, has spoken against these peoples. Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon. There's a person here, verse 25. Immediately, of course, he was trying to get alone. So he goes to Tyre and Sidon. He's trying to get alone. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had been an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. She fell down at his feet and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. This is a Gentile. Verse 26 is kind of like an avalanche of her credentials, okay? She's a Gentile, so she's outside the covenants of promise given to Abraham. She's a Syrophoenician, so she's of a particular lineage. She is from a particular city. She ought to be counted out by any human measures. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, her daughter's on hard spiritual times, if you will. And this demon identified with Satan's work and death would make one unclean to touch this girl. This woman is out of reach. And that's her predicament. She is, if you will, geographically, she is religiously, theologically, and socioeconomically out of reach. She is far from God in every metric, according to Jewish leaders in her day. The disciples would be shocked to see what Jesus does with her. So we have a description of the situation, place, this person, and her predicament. And now we have a conversation, and this conversation is where things get a little weird. I wish we had a video camera on this where you could read the body language. Oh, that facial expression means to hear that line in this way. Oh, the way that he's approaching her, the twinkle in his eye, uh, you can tell by his tone of voice. You don't quite get that on the page. And I take it we're kind of left to feel the tension on the page. We're left to feel a little uncomfortable with the conversation. I don't know how else to take it except that we're left with just that. Otherwise, we ought to have some qualifying statements from Mark, and we don't, we don't have those. Jesus, in this little encounter, frankly, does not look like the Jesus that we know from the rest of the book. In some ways, his encounter with this woman and his engagement with this woman is, well, makes him look bad. And it also makes the Gentiles look bad. And in Mark's day, Mark's audience would be a Christian audience after the resurrection, wrestling with things like the relationship of Jews and Gentiles in God's plan. This little encounter would not help that discussion, would not help those relationships, would not help move those kinds of things forward, which is just interesting. And I would say that it is is one of many Uh, evidences that what we're dealing with is an actual eyewitness account 
what actually happened. Mark doesn't embellish things to make the Savior look a little better, and he doesn't embellish things to help smooth things over between groups in the first century church. Apparently, there's something Jesus is trying to do with these awkward words of his on the page. We'll take it in three steps. The conversation moves in three steps. First, he calls her a dog, and he says that's why he can't heal her. How about that? (laughs) That's what it says. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Uh, This is a riddle or a parable. Um, You're a dog. I'm not able to heal you. I'm sorry. Now, why is this so difficult? Well, this is offensive. So if he's speaking to a woman, if he were to say, you know, use some kind of illustration with a cow in it or an elephant in it. You would just kind of shriek. Um, And the reason for that is, is because that's not a good image. And anyone who has any social and emotional intelligence whatsoever wouldn't use certain animals with certain Certain people, maybe use the illustration of a rat. You know, it's not, it's not just a, these are not, it's not a neutral animal. And a dog in this case would not be a neutral animal. In the Old Testament, the Jews spoke of Gentiles as dogs. Now, dogs weren't like the dogs that we pay so much money for and we feed and we give medicine to and we buy shots for and we pay to be put up when we're out of town and all that stuff. I'm kind of glad I'm over that right now. You've heard enough about the dog in the last year. We're not paying for, to go on vacations anymore uh, as much in gas as we were to put them up. In any case, it's not like that in the first century. Dogs weren't, there were pets at home of a kind, but dogs were generally, uh, you know, the animals that ate carcasses outside. They were dirty animals. They were diseased animals. In some parts of the world, you know, the government just goes around and kills up 200 of them in a day in a city just to keep the numbers down. In other parts of the world, they might resonate with this. Um, There are certain cities in our own country where I think there are more dogs than kids, more money gets spent on dogs than kids. I don't think that's an actual stat, but you get the idea. Dogs were gross. Dogs Dogs were in sin, Israel's shorthand for Gentiles, those outside the people of God. Now, it wasn't always in sin to use that shorthand in that the world outside the people of God was a wicked, wretched, terrible, scary world. But it had become for Israel in her sin a pejorative term, a derogatory image. Good riddance was the thought. And there isn't in history that we know of two peoples more at odds with one another, with more deeply embedded religious opposition one to another than Jews and Gentiles or the rest of the nations from the Jewish standpoint. This was a woman far from God. He calls her a dog, or so it seems that that's what he's saying in the riddle. In the New Testament, there's a couple times when the word dog is on Jesus' own lips. Paul will speak of the dogs, those who oppose the church. It's not always derogatory. Sometimes it's just frank. It's calling a spade a spade. But in any case, you can't write it off. Well, is this what Jesus meant? Did he mean it in its worst sense? 
Some say, well, when you read it, you have to see the twinkle in Jesus's eye. If you could just see the twinkle in his eye, you'd know that he's kind of playing the part. Um, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, kind of inviting her into conversation, sort of acknowledging the, the difference between them and the distance between them religiously and, and inviting her in. I suppose it, it really could be that. Some say, and it's the case, that the word here isn't the worst word for dog. It really is the word you'd use for a household pet. And so he's just, you know, he's in a house and he's using... Uh, you know, a, a home, a home kind of illustration here. You know, there's the animal and there's the cereal in the cupboard and he's just grabbing what's around. I don't know. I, I can't see, again, remember the animals that I mentioned. There's just some places you don't reach. And I can't see this any other way except an awkward kind of confrontation with her. So what do I think? I think he doesn't mean it in a derogatory fashion. I do think he means it in a theological fashion. Notice what he says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In the scriptures, there is a clear movement of the gospel and God's good news plan through the people of Israel the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. And that people had collected all kinds that had attached themselves to the people of God and come under the old covenant. But it was through Israel that the gospel would come, salvation would come. And so to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Paul will say in Romans chapter one, you get this order of things in the Old Testament. In Isaiah, he'll speak of salvation coming and the eyes opening and and Israel singing and then the nations hear and come to sing that good news with them. There's a kind of a, a movement and I think there's a hint here that that's what he's doing. But he is indicating that she's on the outside of the action. And he is using that word that indicates that those people out there are condemned apart from joining themselves to Israel and her, her promises. So I think he's testing her to see if she knows who he is and to see if she knows who she is. Jesus is always putting people in very uncomfortable situations with the things that he says, does he not? And this is no exception. He's putting her in an uncomfortable situation, given her lot and station. So I think he's testing her. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. But there is a hint here in what he says that there could be food for the world, although he doesn't give it away. So is she offended? Because we've got other people in the story of Mark's gospel who are offended with Jesus. It doesn't take anything to offend them. It doesn't take anything to offend them. He can offer forgiveness to this individual here and these folks want to kill him. He can say a sharp word and offend. Jesus is offending left and right. People are walking away from him because they don't understand what he's saying. I don't get it, I'm out. Or I get it. And we're going to get him. 
he's said something very difficult and somewhat ugly, frank at least, is she offended? Does she know who she is and who he is? He has set this up in such a way that we will find out in how she responds. And we see in the second step of the conversation that yes, she agrees with him actually, but then she argues with him. But she answered him, verse 28, yes, Lord, she accepts his premise. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Oh, she's good. Would you know that she is the first one in the whole story of Mark to actually track with anything enigmatic that Jesus says? (laughs) No one else tracks with him. The disciples don't get him. He's actually probably in Tyre and Sidon to teach the disciples. I could flip you to two or three other places in the gospel where he goes away and gets alone to teach the disciples. They weren't getting what he was doing in the previous accounts. And here he's got them alone, probably to teach them. And here is this Gentile Syrophoenician woman who is tracking with him sharp enough to engage him and even enter into the parable he sets up and put herself in it ahead. Yes, Lord. Yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She finds more bread in what Jesus has to say to her here than Jesus' disciples had found in the 12 baskets full that they carried away from the feeding of 5,000. Remember? They didn't understand the loaves. They didn't know who he was, really. And they didn't know who they were, really. But here, this woman, cornered with a kind of offensive line that minimally puts her in her place in terms of God's plan theologically finds her way in the mix because, oh, she does know who he is and she does know who she is. She accepts her place as one who comes to Jesus with absolutely nothing. She accepts her place as one who comes to Jesus with absolutely nothing. And that's the point. She comes with nothing and she knows it. How will Jesus respond? And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed And the demon, gone. Now, this whole exchange is a lesson for us in biblical interpretation and how we interpret narrative passages and single lines in narrative passages. We have to read any creepy line Jesus says or confusing line Jesus says in light of the whole story in which it's found. 
So we see now where it was all going. And so we see that Jesus was leading her right there. And Jesus is also teaching us and his disciples who are present through what he's drawing out of her. And so here we have a woman who Jesus could well have said, like he said to others, because of your faith, your daughter is healed. She has truly believed him. And he has spoken to her in such a way to draw precisely that faith out into its very sharp expression. Just as he draws the unbelief in others out through the things that he says. And then we also, of course, have to read every story in light of the book itself. Here's an insight that helps with reading this encounter to recognize that this time in Gentile lands with people outside God's covenant promises, uh, pejoratively spoken of by the Jewish people, is set in contrast with the encounters we saw in the last week, specifically last week with the Pharisees who were all obsessed about unclean things and touching the wrong things. And they had become very OCD about their worship, very OCD about precisely how things ought to be done. There's a tradition that was handed down to them and it's precious to them. And Jesus isn't keeping it. Well, their heart is far from God and they aren't worshiping in faith except in faith in their own human traditions, which is the danger with human traditions as we learned. It's good to shed the shell every now and then. Even, even wanting to be at a church that's willing to and actually does shed some shells over time just to make sure that we know where the main thing and the main action is. And I think we're doing just fine there by God's grace. Last week wasn't a kick. It was more of an encouragement. I hope that you felt that. I think we're in an okay place. But to compare this passage and this encounter with this Gentile woman with what came before is my point. His encounter with these Pharisees, these religious leaders who had misunderstood the heart of God in his word and in his law and for his people. And so they were blind to Jesus when he was standing right in front of them and they couldn't hear him when he was speaking right to him. Just continue, just consider the matter of contrast. These were Jewish men Jesus was speaking to. And now we have here a Gentile woman. We have those who came to Jesus with the law and with their additional laws. And we have a woman who comes to Jesus with faith apart from the law. We have men who come to Jesus wrapped and prepared to meet him in all of their righteousness. And we have a woman who comes empty handed and knows it. We have a group that comes to Jesus with a list of things that he must do for himself. And we have a woman who comes to Jesus with one thing she needs Jesus to do for her. It's not wrong to say, don't go to church for what you can get, but for what you can give. There's a point to be made. We're each to serve. We're each to contribute. Let that not be the first or the main thing that we have to say to one another. 
in the first place. We come to church. We come to God to get. We come to give him nothing in a first and primary sense. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He made it all. Don't think that he needs you here today. And that's wonderfully freeing because if we're honest, we know that we need him anyways. So yes, come to give. Don't be just a getter. But if I had to put the accent in one place in our church, the accent would be on getting. We come empty handed. We don't come to give anything from our own resources. We come to get from God. And here's a woman who comes to get from Jesus. She knows who he is. She knows who she is. And Jesus has provoked her with an offensive question to draw out her faith with clarity. And is it not beautiful? Easy to miss, but that's what I think is going on there. What kind of people does Jesus heal? The farthest kind and the lowest kind. Any person, no matter how far they are geographically, economically, even politically, even theologically, before they get Jesus right, any person, no matter how far they are from God, she was as far as you could get from Jesus in every way except by proximity here. Anyone, no matter how far they are from God, if they come like this. Deal Moody said, Jesus sent no one away empty-handed except those who were full of themselves. And I went to Moody Bible Institute. That was my first Moody quote, I think. He's not as rich as Spurgeon, but that's a good one. All right, that's what kind of people Jesus came to heal. Now, what kind of healing does Jesus bring? What kind of healing does Jesus bring? Verses 31 through 37. The first story began in a house trying to get some privacy. And we added some people as the woman came. This second account, this second story begins with a crowd and then it narrows to a more private situation. In terms of the place, we're in the Decapolis. Jesus, if you follow the map, makes a really weird pattern. It's zigzag. It doesn't really make any sense. And every commentator will say, we don't know why he's bouncing all about. Maybe this, 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 or this. Let's just get on with it. He's in the Decapolis, and this is where the encounter takes place. And you remember, this is that place where uh, the demon-possessed man, the demoniac, uh, possessed by a legion of demons that Jesus sent out into the pigs and How demonic were they? Well, this is what happens when those demons get in pigs. They run right to their death, which is exactly what they were trying to do to that man. Jesus freed that man, and that man went all about speaking about Jesus. And in that case, Jesus told the guy to, and he was faithful to tell his friends and his family of all the mercy that Jesus had had on him. Well, we're in the Decapolis. And no doubt as he had gone about each of these 10 cities, his word of Jesus had gotten out. Now concerning the person, we have here a man who was deaf, verse 32, and had a speech impediment. So he couldn't hear at all and he could hardly speak an impediment. So 
it's likely that his hearing issue occurred later in life and that when he was younger, he learned to speak. But after having gone deaf, his ability to speak had degraded. And so now he can hardly speak. He's not entirely mute, apparently. But Guy's in a hard spot and his friends grab him and then beg Jesus, as the woman had begged Jesus. Now they beg Jesus to heal their friend. I don't even know if the guy knew what was going on. Remember, he can't hear. I don't know if they had time to sketch it out on something or tap it in his hand. I don't know how they communicate with him. Maybe there was a way that they went about it. But in any case, the friends have taken him to Jesus and they're begging Jesus to heal, heal this man. On verses 33 through 35, we find out about the first kind of healing Jesus brings. And let's watch Jesus with the man now. The first kind of healing Jesus brings, or the first way to describe it rather, is that it's the personal kind. And taking him aside from the crowd privately. I don't think this was out of an annoyance with the crowd. I don't think this was fully so that he wouldn't make too much of a scene, which was part of his purpose. I'll get to that. I think it was at least partly because this is about the man and not about Jesus. It's about the man and not about this dramatic event in front of the crowd. It was for the man, not for the crowd. He pulls the man aside privately to deal with him and to address him. Taking him aside, Jesus gets personal with him. He's personalized. He was one in a crowd. Each of you are one in a crowd this morning. Every Sunday, we find ourselves one in a crowd. Jesus pulls the man aside to heal him personally. And don't miss what that means for us. So he takes him aside from the crowd privately. What he does now. He put his fingers into his ears. Sometimes my kids do that to each other. One of my very littles did that to me with a very wet hand recently. This isn't usually welcome. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. So Jesus pulls the man aside. He touches his ears. And he spits and he touches his tongue. What's he doing? Maybe one of the reasons he pulled the man aside was so that he would not be misunderstood as doing some type of magical ritual because that's what it kind of looks like, doesn't it? He's touching and doing these kinds of things. What is that? I think it's a kind of sign language, improvised. Would the man not understand as Jesus looks at him and touches his ears and he spits on his hand and he touches his tongue? What he's about to do, he's communicating with that man. He takes him aside from the crowd privately, puts his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. Now looking up to heaven, he sighed. Now that's interesting. So you've got some touch. You've got a sigh. The guy couldn't hear it, but perhaps he could perceive it. Jesus sighs. I don't think this is from some type of exhaustion. Like, I'll do it again. 
I don't think that's what it is, although I'm reading the previous story as cutting against the grain of some of Jesus's normal behavior, at least, although it's consistent in that Jesus was consistently provocative. But in this case, I don't think he's sighing from some kind of exhaustion or irritation for sure. I think it's from an emotional engagement with the moment. Jesus left heaven to come to earth. Jesus is the one through whom the father created all things. He's the creator of all things. He didn't make man to be like this. He didn't make eyes to lose sight or ears to be broken or a mouth to stammer. And here he is face to face with a man who can't speak and can't hear and he can't help but sigh. Jesus is fully engaged in the moment with the man and his problem. There's another thing Jesus does. He speaks, he speaks to him. Ephetha, that is, be opened. We get these quotes in original language when it burned, it burned a memory on the eyewitness who was there. Peter, in this case, that Mark worked with as Mark composed his account. Peter couldn't tell the story without putting it in Jesus' words. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Jesus spoke. That's important. Because it's one confirmation to the man and anyone who would hear the story that this This wasn't doing it. It wasn't some matter of the movement of hands and the touching of of the tongue. What was it that made the difference for the man between speaking, not speaking and speaking and not hearing and hearing? Well, it was the very word of Jesus. It was the word of Jesus. That's what made the difference. Jesus speaks that it happens. Jesus speaks, be open. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released. And he spoke plainly how we can look forward to the day when all of our ailments, physical and otherwise, are gone. Jesus will speak and your mouths will be opened, your ears will be opened, and every other difficulty you've ever had, your back won't hurt. Your leg will be back. You'll see again. You won't need glasses. All that is part of the good news and it meets us in the end. Jesus speaks, and now the man speaks. What kind of healing does Jesus bring? Well, the kind of healing Jesus brings is the, it's the personal kind. We've watched Jesus. But there's more here. Verses 36 through 37. Let me read these. He charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it in proportion to the intensity of Jesus's um, charge. They do the opposite. And they were astonished beyond measure. Couldn't help themselves. This is an important line here. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. When I first read that studying this, I just rested on that line. He does all things well. It's almost poetic. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And that's almost poetic. 
It's like they've heard of the things he's done. He even makes the deaf, the deaf. They don't speak about this man in particular, although they're speaking of this man in particular, but it's, it's the kind of thing that he does. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I need to draw your attention to something that isn't so obvious. In Mark's gospel account, which is probably written, all of the gospel accounts are written for general audiences. They were evangelistic and they were a matter of discipleship for the church. The emphasis needs to be there. They were general. But it's said that Mark was likely writing, in terms of emphasis, for a more Gentile audience. You don't get a lot of direct Old Testament quotations. More allusions. Nevertheless, the Old Testament, certainly, and Isaiah in particular, sits underneath Mark's gospel. And I've drawn your attention to this time and again. This theme of the new exodus that Jesus brings about and a new creation that he brings about that are these incredible themes across the prophets, but in particular in Isaiah. And Isaiah is quoted at the head of Mark's gospel. Just keep that in mind. There are Isaiah quotes throughout Mark's gospel. Well, sometimes Mark will hold something out in a little more of a pronounced way in order to show us the structure of his gospel. Jesus has been fulfilling Old Testament expectations for stories and stories now. The feeding of the 5,000 didn't seem so obviously a fulfillment of the promise that the good shepherd would come. But we, we saw how there are some echoes from Old Testament promises. And in the background of the Pharisees who are the wicked shepherds, and we showed how in different scenes and stories, Jesus was actually, and it maybe have felt like a stretch at some times, but I assure you, at least this preacher does, that those connections that we made are not stretches. Well, this is one of those moments when Mark is going to hold out that point of fulfillment in a little more of an explicit way. Not as explicit as some of the other gospel writers, but in a little more of an explicit fashion. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35, if you will. Isaiah chapter 35. Let me set the table first. Isaiah chapter 35 brings us to the end of the first section of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah comes to us in three large divisions. This brings us to the end of the, the first of those three large divisions. This comes at the conclusion of a number of chapters of rolling judgment on the nations, Egypt, Tyre, and Jerusalem, and others. Tyre and Sidon, is in the land of Lebanon. Chapter 35 turns a different note. And this is what happens in the prophets. You have judgment and salvation. Incredible, sweeping, world-ending judgment, sin-ending judgment, and sweeping new creation promises of salvation. Chapter 35 is one of those bright spots. It's when the sun comes out. When you're reading the prophets, you're like waiting for this. Well, here it is. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. 
And that speaks not just to physical terrain, but spiritual terrain. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. I always pronounce the next word wrong. I'll skip it. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Strengthen weak hands and make firm feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. And shall come the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Let the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass will become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. God's way, the Lord's way, the Lord who comes prepare the way. That's the line that opened the gospel of Mark. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. And they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The redeemed shall walk there. Where? In Tyre and Sidon, in the land of Lebanon. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and singing shall flee away. Now listen to this last line. They were astonished beyond measure saying he's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. And Mark is pointing you to Isaiah chapter 35. And he's saying, That day that God has long promised through his prophets when everything will be right in the world. Most importantly, and first, when everything is right with you and me all the way down between us and God and with one another. That day has dawned and it is here in Jesus What kind of healing does Jesus bring? It's a personal kind of healing. That's good news. But aren't you glad this isn't just a story of a man who can help the mute speak and the deaf to hear? This matter of God promising the day when the mute will speak and the deaf will hear isn't just speaking of physical recovery. It's speaking of spiritual recovery. Remember who isn't getting it. The disciples aren't getting it. They don't understand. Don't you understand? Why is your heart hard? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You still don't understand? We're only a week or two away until we have a moment of profound misunderstanding. We'll get there in a few weeks. The disciples on the page of this book are not good hearers of the word. 
Their soil is not that great. Oh, but we have a hint that some will hear. And we have a promise here anchored in the Old Testament that not only will God make the mute to speak and the deaf to hear, but he will make us to hear him. He will make his disciples to hear his word truly. And he will make his disciples to speak his word truly. Do you see that? Against the backdrop of Isaiah 35, if in fact that sits underneath this passage, that's precisely what God's promising he will do. Because in those, those chapters of rolling judgment, the chapters of rolling judgment before chapter 35, when he promises the day when we'll hear and speak and have spiritual life all the way down, we're rolling judgment for not hearing and hardening our hearts against God. And so one day, the spiritual sickness that you and I know in our own hearts because we harden ourselves against God and you heard it in what you said to your spouse this morning and the thoughts that you thought as you lay in bed last night. From despair to anger to murder to lust, all, these, all, of this, all this evidence of our great spiritual sickness, God will heal it all. And your resistance to God's word, which on the one hand you embrace because you're resisting, but on the other hand you hate because you're at conflict within yourself if you know God, One day, all of that will be gone. And the fact that you're here to hear this morning is proof that this is already being brought about. He does all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. And by the way, that poetic type of line, he does all things well, is an echo of Genesis 131. And it was good. And it was good. And it was very good. Jesus does all things well. The Lord of creation makes the mute to speak, the lame to leap, the deaf to hear is himself also, praise God, the Lord of the new creation. What kind of healing does Jesus bring? The personal kind, the spiritual kind, the all-encompassing kind. He will fix us completely and don't forget who he's talking to, Gentiles, just as he'd spoken to a Gentile Syrophoenician by birth. No one comes, not Jairus who fell down before Jesus, the president of the local synagogue who had all the credentials and the heart and the faith, not Jairus and not this woman, the second person who falls down before Jesus. Two people in this book fall down before Jesus so far. One's the president of the synagogue teaching the scriptures every day. And the other one's this woman who may never have heard the scriptures taught. Neither has any credentials before Jesus that count except their faith. The kind of healing Jesus brings is the personal kind, the spiritual kind, and the all-encompassing kind. He does it all for us. Now a third question. Why is Jesus always trying to hide? Well, we've got this, we just can't escape it. We've explored it a little bit here and there. I want to explore it again. Verse 24, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. And then verse 36, and he charged them to tell no one. Why? Because he was annoyed, because he was scared, 
No, because he was focused. He was focused. He was focused on his particular mission. And his particular mission was not to be a medical missionary. His particular mission was not to heal everyone he encountered. His particular mission was not to build a great reputation. Jesus had a particular mission in his limited time with his limited life. Jesus had a particular mission and that mission was to go to the cross and to die for our sins. Because none of the things that he's saying he does and that he's signaling that he's going to do in these healings, he can accomplish or will accomplish apart from taking our sins away and reconciling us to God and giving us new life through his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is constrained by a narrow mission focused on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus cannot afford to become too famous for healing. You see, she heard about him and he's been trying to keep the word out down. He can't afford everywhere he goes to be inciting revolution or drawing so much attention on account of his healings. Just imagine if he had leaned into this, it'd be completely out of hand and it would say the wrong thing about why he came. But he's consistently reminding us as to why he came. Remember when his disciples found him in chapter two, praying and they're like, everyone's coming after you. And he said, I've got something to preach. Let's go. Signaling to us that our priorities might not be precisely his. He's focused on his mission. He's constrained by his narrow mission, focused on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And so friends, can we not, ought we not to be constrained by our mission, which is on the one hand, properly narrow. The heart of the church's mission is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to all nations. It's properly narrow. It's properly broad. All nations. And our message goes to everybody. So we find Jesus here on the page hiding. You find him and then he says, don't tell anybody where I'm at. He's in a house and he gets found out and he rolls with it and he instructs us through it. But he's hiding time and again. Let me assure you, friend, that this great physician is not hiding from you this morning. He doesn't mean to hide himself from anyone in this world. He's put himself and his message and his offer on the lips of every man and woman who bears his name and on this church. And the way that Jesus is revealed and not hidden in our community is through the word preached and the word spoken by each of us in our neighborhoods and as a community of faith to our community. Praise God that Jesus is not hiding anymore. Don't hide in a house this week, okay? Stay inside. Go out and get some sun too. You need to get outside. But don't hide in your house. Walk across the street as we say. Meet the neighbor you keep waving at and don't know their name. Don't be embarrassed about that. Just say, I don't know your name. That's dumb. It's been years. My name is. And then you can greet him by name and then get their story. Don't hide in a house. And then um, don't obey Jesus' command here. It's not for you. He charged them to tell no one. That command is not for you. That command was for them and they disobeyed it. But you obey Jesus' command to go and to speak. And like they did, 
the more he charges us to go and tell, how much more zealously ought we to proclaim it? Yes, Jesus does all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word. We give you praise for your word. Two less memorable stories, two less memorable encounters with Jesus, two somewhat awkward encounters with Jesus, even to some extent troubling encounters with Jesus. And yet they're here for our instruction and we are awfully glad. Would you make us a people that speaks eagerly, even zealously about your son? Embolden us by the spirit to speak zealously about Jesus, to look for that opportunity and to pray for an open door and then to seize on it, to learn a neighbor's name, to get a neighbor's story, to share our own, which we cannot share apart from speaking of Christ. Would you give us those kinds of opportunities this week? Maybe each of us, which would account for hundreds of gospel opportunities or maybe only a few. But Father, grant them and embolden us to speak clearly as we ought. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.